what to be and what not to be. This is a matter the book of Proverbs addresses continually. It is a book that counsels us how to live and who we are to become. And in the outworking of that counsel, Proverbs teaches us this, who you are and who you become is directly related to the life skill of honoring the right people and avoiding the wrong kind of people. There are in this world certain kinds of people who appeal to us. They draw us in. They're interesting. And there are with those people certain kinds of lifestyles that we find very attractive. And yet, we must learn that these people and these lifestyles are destructive to the way that God would have us to live our lives. The way that He created us to live our lives. Getting mixed up with such people and pursuing such lifestyles is a sure way to trash your life. Do we have categories for this? We must as we read through the book of Proverbs. And so by God's grace, we must learn to discern the seriousness of the danger of connecting with certain people and certain lifestyles. Secondly, we must learn to identify such people and lifestyles. And then thirdly, we need to make concerted effort and indeed succeed in avoiding these people and these lifestyles. If you don't develop that kind of skill, the capacity to discern, the capacity to understand, the capacity to avoid such people and such lifestyles, you are reaping the negative consequences. You will reap the negative consequences. Your life will be, to put it as we might, messed up. If not now, it will be. The book of Proverbs is given to us in part to help us steer clear of that problem. So with great interest, we turn our attention to the counsel of wisdom. And we looked at Proverbs chapter 5 last week and we noted they're a kind of person to avoid. A kind of sexual relationship we can pursue that is powerfully appealing. It's utterly intoxicating, but it destroys It leads to moral disaster. It leads to financial ruin. And it leads to social shame. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. This ruinous kind of relationship is contrasted with the beauty and the invigorating joy of marital intimacy which God has designed. Verses 15 through 19. So there's a relationship here, there's a, there's a way of living that is described for us in chapter 5, and now as we transition in our series to Proverbs chapter 6, our Heavenly Father counsels us regarding several other types of people and several other types of lifestyles that we need to be skilled enough to avoid. And so the text is given to us in a somewhat negative fashion here, but it's saying stay clear of this path. Stay on the right way. To live in sync with God's creative design and blessing, we must first of all recognize the danger of jeoparding our wealth by assuming foolish financial obligations. There's a person here to avoid. There's a way of life here to avoid. Beginning at verse 1 
As we've read it already, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. Let's stop there and say, save yourself from what? What are we delivering ourselves from here? What exactly is the situation in view? Let me say there's a pretty significant cultural gap between us and the ancient world here. Sparing you a lot of the details, to suffice it to say, the banking practices that prevailed in ancient Israel were primitive compared to our day. Loans were not handed out by government-insured banks. So it was common, that's done in our day, but far more in this day, it was common to co-sign a loan. That is, uh, to be security as a third party. So the creditor would lend money to one person, and a third person, that's you in this context, would agree to pay back the loan amount to the creditor if the debtor defaulted. So I'll give you money. I'll loan this money to you, that's mine, and you'll pay me back. But if you don't, I want somebody else to say they will. You're in that third-party position in this text. Now, what appears to be in view here is a situation in which you have given your word to a neighbor who is, the text says, a stranger. Now, that doesn't mean you've never met the person. Obviously, you're in a business relationship here with him. You met him. But the idea of stranger, and particularly in the context of Proverbs, is someone who's outside your circle of responsibility. This is a person who's outside your responsibility to help. Someone you may want to impress. It may be someone you pity. Someone, something of that sort, but not someone who is part of your clan, part of your people, part of a circle of influence that, for which you are responsible. This is somebody outside, and the motivation for securing this person's financial situation is, is a bit suspect. Simply said, you've made a financial decision that jeopardizes your family heritage. And family heritage is clearly connected here in the context. Chapter 5, verse 10. Remember the problem, less strangers, why do you avoid the adulterous woman? Verse 10, less strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. Not foreigner thinking in, in terms as we consider it of nations, but thinking of it as someone outside that circle of influence, outside that circle of family or clan or nation or church or something like that. The same basic idea then is in view here. There's a sense of the preservation of one's financial security in the right and best sense of the word. So you've ventured into a financial dealings that have stretched you unnecessarily. You've made a decision that puts your larger family at risk. If you're in that situation, what is the skillful thing to do? The morally wise thing to do, verse 3, is save yourself. For, verse 3, you have come into the hand of your neighbor. What is he saying? You must understand that you are under the control of your neighbor. You know that guy you borrowed, you loaned him money? The guy you co-signed for? That guy's situation is controlling your situation. 
your financial status is really now his status. And so this is what you need to do. You need to go, you need to save yourself, having come into the hand of your neighbor, verse 3 at the middle part of the verse, go then, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep, your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler, the one who catches birds to eat, not to put them in a cage and feed them. Yeah, that's where you're at. Get out of that situation. You need to swallow your pride, tell your neighbor that you've made a mistake, and plead to be released. That's wisdom. You're entrapped really like a gazelle or a bird. Give full diligence to free yourself from that trap. Let me make a few comments about this relationship and this situation. First of all, This is not counsel to be stingy with your money, to withhold help from people to whom it is due. We need to take into account all of Scripture. Wise people who love God are liberal with their giving. They rejoice to love others with their wealth. Wise people long to put money into play to advance the cause of God, to serve His glory in this world. That's not the idea. When I met Beth um, before we were married. She had a dog. I don't remember the dog's name, but it was a mental case. It was a high-strung, really messed-up dog. And as I got into this family, I realized that the family members had something to do with that dog's mental condition. But (laughs) one of the things that Beth would do and had great fun doing was to go at the dog's dish and act like she was going to take the food. And this dog would run at the dish, put its front legs around the dish, and show its teeth and growl like it was going to kill you if you touch this worthless food. Is that the picture we're to get here? That, that I'm like that dog and that dish is like my money and I, I put my arms around that dish and I growl at anybody who wants to get anywhere near my money. You stay away, it's my money. That's not the idea here. And if we gain that idea, we've really missed the point of this text and certainly of all that Scripture teaches. That's not the idea. In view here is the kind of financial decision you make that extends you too far and coupled with it, it's embarrassing to get out of it. That's the situation we have in view. Maybe you wanted to impress someone to get accolades for coming to the rescue or being really smart. Or maybe you felt pressured or guilted into this decision. Maybe you just weren't thinking very clearly and you got yourself wrapped up in the excitement of an investment or a purchase. We've probably all been in one of these categories somewhere. This is the basic idea here. Whatever the circumstances, and it's not just co-signing for a loan that that qualifies as as the situation, but for some reason, you have made a financial decision You can get out of it if you humble yourself. If you don't, you're really in over your head. This is not going to be fun, but it's the only wise thing to do. So maybe you promise to join friends in a risky business venture that will ruin you if it goes bad. You don't want to humble yourself and get out of it. You just are going to go forward and just hope for the best. 
or you're scheduled to sign a purchase agreement on a house that you know you really can't afford. You're gambling. Or you join a purchasing club whose annual fee is draining away needed family resources and truth be told, you're really not coming out better here. You're coming out worse. But you don't want to humble yourself and get out of it. You purchase a monthly service contract that you can't afford and it's really not working out and it's draining money away in some way or other. Fill in the details. But you get the idea. A financial decision has been made and it usually comes with that sort of that pit in your stomach, that sick feeling that I'm doing something here I shouldn't be doing. It takes unnecessary, inappropriate risk and you are embarrassed to get out of it the counsel here is get out of it. Free yourself. Think of that gazelle caught in a trap. It's wiggling its leg. It's thrusting itself around. That bird that's caught in the net is flopping all over the place trying to get out. That's you. Get out. Find a way to release yourself. Now, what's the ultimate point here? It's put in a certain way to really get our attention, but the ultimate point is don't get in this place in the first place. Don't get into this situation in the first place. Wise people exercise financial caution. There's a skillful way of living in this world and it's not by pouring out money and whatever harebrained idea comes across your path or helping people out in ways that you really can't. Wise people are careful to avoid situations that entrap them and deplete their financial strength. God gives us wealth to enjoy and to invest in His cause. He gives us wealth to bless others. We are stewards of that wealth, and wise people do not allow the decisions of others to drag them into no-win situations. There's good ways to use our money, and there's foolish ways to use our money, and wise people are warned to avoid these financial traps. Give yourself no sleep until you have dealt with the matter leads to the second line of counsel regarding one who gets too much sleep. And that is secondly now a warning against laziness. Verse 6, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. God put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. And God made us to work. He also designed the universe such that rich rewards typically follow honest, hard work. Not always, but this is the general order of things. Sluggards and lazy people defy this order. And they suffer the inevitable consequences that come. So God challenges the sluggard here to take a lesson from the lowly ant. The ant works diligently to secure food during the narrow window of harvest in Israel. The ant wisely stores up food in his nest to provide for the long winter months when gathering is not going to be possible. And they're, they're amazing creatures, aren't they? Have you probably observed ants somewhere along the line? And we see them, have you ever seen an ant hauling a carcass that's about ten times its size? Just patiently working to haul that thing to wherever it's going? 
And you see, too, they, they really are very skilled in their cooperative efforts. If you've ever had ants eating into your house, you realize just how skilled they are and just how expensive they can be. But they, they have this ability to work together. You take one ant, it's nothing. But all that diligence and that energy working together, there's much that's accomplished by ants. They're tremendous workers. And the teacher steps back and observes, isn't it interesting? In what you see little tiny ants doing, there's never anybody there with a whip getting them to do what they're supposed to do. There's no particular leader that's out there making them do this or that. Now, I want you to take a lesson from this, he says. The ant is a model of self-discipline. The ant is a self-starter. The ant models diligent, unrelenting industry. The ant models foresight by working ahead to secure future benefits. In contrast, lazy people fail to grasp that their indiscipline today is already making, taking a terrible toll upon their future. Being a sluggard, being lazy, being not disciplined feels really good in the moment. But it's leading somewhere. And it's not good. And so as if trying to rouse the lazy son from sleep, the father says, verse 9, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The folding of the hands is, probably, is speaking more of the, what we would call the arms folded over the chest and repose. Now, in our day, sluggards may sleep too much, but they mostly play too much. There's so many diversions in our world, so many things to do that draw us away from diligent hard work. The escape of choice in this day, in this setting, was sleep, and ours is just a lot more opportunities. But people who live with moral skill and biblical insight realize that laziness impoverishes. Laziness accomplishes nothing of value. And laziness eventually jumps you and robs you of wealth and opportunity. One of the vital lessons parents must teach their children is the discipline of getting out of bed in the morning. Now there's some, and we've got at least one, that sometimes we'd like to nail down into his bed in the morning because he gets up so early. You don't have to teach some kids. There's others. This is a discipline that's going to take a long, long time. The how to get out of bed on time in the right way. One of the vital lessons parents must teach their children is the importance of hard work as well. You get out of bed and you get to work. You get things done. It's not a lesson most children relish, but it's utterly essential. Allow laziness to become your pattern of life and you will destroy your future. And let me say frankly, there's some of us who had parents that were really good at teaching this. We may not have been so good at listening at the time, but they taught us to work. They taught us to get up. They taught us not to be lazy and that it's, it's, it, you've got to go out and make your living in this world and it's going to come through hard work. 
And there's others, perhaps, that you didn't get that lesson. And missing that lesson, you're really kind of stuck in your childhood. And you live your life trying to escape work. I remember working in a factory years ago and realizing it scared me to death. I was in college and I'm really glad for the experience because I was working with these guys that had gotten in that trench and they were never going to change. Their whole day was lived to get out of work and get a paycheck for it. At every turn, they found a way to shirk work to do it a little bit less enthusiastically than they could. They always were trying to do less. And I realized, I don't want to live like that. Maybe you're stuck there. The Father teaches us here, children, as you grow, as you mature, get a job. Get a job. Save money. Work hard. The future costs more than you think. Work and save diligently. Don't choose play in a wrong way over the work that needs to be done. And for all of us, there is a place for rest and relaxation, and people who live skillfully figure that out. They learn how to manage the necessity of rest. But every one of us is given to laziness. Even if we had the training in our upbringing to teach us to work diligently, every one of us has a lazy bone. And maybe a few of them. What is your weak spot for laziness? Where do you play the sluggard? Get it in your head. We won't ask for it out loud, but identify it. Where are you given to laziness? I could give you a list for me. That list isn't helping you. It's not helping me. That's an area we need to work on and work out of our life. That spot, that habit, that time of the day, the week or month or year is not helping us. We sow what we reap. Sowing lazy habits, sowing indiscipline reaps poverty. It reaps ineffectuality. Now there's a difference, of course, in the Bible between those who are poor through no fault of their own and those who are poor because of indiscipline. There's a difference. They're impoverished because they're lazy. God loves and protects the poor. But God has little patience for the lazy, for the sluggard. And you will find in the book of Proverbs that when God, the ultimate fatherly counselor, speaks to the sluggard and speaks to one with lack of discipline, the words are not gentle. Get out of bed and get working. That's His word to us. We've got to hear it. We've got to heed it. We've got to grow out of the natural tendency to vacation all the time. So overwork is a problem we must avoid. But we must also remember in this world that we're not here long. We live this life once. Go hard. Work diligently. Be wise as you approach the future. There's a place for hobbies and games and entertainment and casual reading and television and vacations and surfing the web and indeed for sleeping. 
But we have to remember these things can draw us away from vital responsibilities and there will be payday someday. If we continue to sow to laziness and indiscipline, we will be setting up for ourselves a pattern of life, a way of living that will not be pretty. It will be a mess on some level. So we are warned here against laziness. The third warning is against a life orientation of troublemaking. Verse 12, here we have a person that's depicted, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. What's going on there? With perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. He's uh, pointing and scraping the feet and uh, squinting of the eyes or winking with the eyes. And all of this is coming out of a perverted heart. And what it is, this, this person is a godless troublemaker. One who stirs up trouble in defiance of God's will and uses these kind of communication on the sly tactics with other troublemakers. Slandering people in private, keeping secrets, brokering backroom deals. They sow discord. That is, their selfish, godless agenda divides people. Do you know someone like this? We call them troublemakers. They're all around. And we've got to learn to detect who they are and to avoid them. Because verse 15, therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. Troublemakers may be popular, they may have power with people, but at the end of the day, their lives will be shattered. They'll be splintered apart like a ship dashed against the rocks of a stormy sea, in a stormy sea. Such people sow trouble, and in the end, they reap trouble. So, we are to avoid them, and of course, we are to be careful not to become such a person. There's a lot of things you can be called in this life, and some of them are negative. Make sure that no one calls you a troublemaker. One who stirs up trouble with people and divides people. Now, should we, when we say avoid such people, should we share the gospel with them? Of course. Should we meet with them? Of course. We should pull them to what is right. But it's a warning against getting caught up with such people. Sometimes people marry a troublemaker. It might be developing a close friendship with such a person. It might be a financial partnership with such a person. Learn to discern. Stand back and be able to read a troublemaker and know that's trouble. You're not going to get by with this. And my linking up with this individual is only going to lead to trouble and to ruin in my own life. Be able to figure out who's a troublemaker. Here's what they're like. They're not godly. They're not faithful to the Lord. They don't have a tender conscience. They're just always working, manipulating in order to divide people and gain things for themselves. Don't be such a person and don't get drugged down by such a person. And here then is what you ultimately want to avoid in it all. Verse 16 a warning against a life orientation that God hates. So we've been warned against financial indiscipline. We've been warned against laziness. 
We've been warned against the life orientation of troublemaking, and we are warned now against the life orientation that God hates. Verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. When, when you find that in the Hebrew, six and seven could be three and four. The point is that it's a representative list, not that there's only seven things God hates. But here's the kind of things that God hates. Verse 17, haughty eyes. Speaks of one who has an arrogant, self-exalting face. It reflects an arrogant, self-exalting heart. God loves humility. He values people whose eyes reflect respect for others and proper self-assessment. Now we can be judgmental. But you can read a lot into what a person's eyes communicate about what's in their soul. There should be a vision of humility. God hates an arrogant face. Lying tongue. God always perfectly corresponds to reality and He ordains all that comes to pass. God cannot lie. So when we lie, we misrepresent God and He hates that. It is utter folly to have a life of deceit. Thirdly, hands that shed innocent blood. Technically, this refers to murder. But the idea can be more broadly applied to someone who takes advantage of others, who's harming others. Such people harm innocent people for personal gain. It might be vandalism or a business scam or the forming of some clique. But back to the primary meaning. It struck me, God hates hands that shed innocent blood. Let's pause to consider the egregious shedding of innocent blood that takes place in our land every day. God hates the abortion of unborn children. The right to end the life of your unborn child is heralded far and wide in this land as a human right. A fundamental human freedom. Shedding innocent blood is not a right, it is playing God, and it is something God despises. Blood is shed, and it's innocent blood, and God despises it. Verse 18, he despises a heart that devises wicked plans. Such people may be driven by greed or bitterness or revenge or perhaps their own sensual passions, but in one way or another, the picture is of one who is fantasizing, planning, scheming, thinking about harming others and breaking God's law, going back to guarding the heart in our conversation there in chapter 4. We must be very cautious about the thoughts that go through our mind. To guard them, a heart that devises wicked plans, upsets God. Feet that make haste to run to evil is something God hates. From the musings of the heart, we now move here to action. God hates those who run after evil, who pursue it. Verse 14, a false witness who breathes out lies. This is one who marshals lies in order to ruin the reputation of others. Such people say whatever they get away with in order to damage others. We witness it on a lot of levels, but we certainly see it in politics, for instance. This is reading with recent elections of some of the schemes of politicians. 
They sit down in a room, and the discussion was made at this very point. They sit down in a room and find the opposing candidate's greatest strength. Then they sit down with that greatest strength and say, how can we turn that strength into a weakness? What can we say about this person that the one thing that would really commend this individual to be the President of the United States or the, a Senator or something, a House representative, and, and it'll turn exactly the other way. So they take the greatest asset of their opponent and they twist it into a liability, impugning motives, telling lies, twisting facts. God hates that. He hates it. He hates it whenever we use false witness to harm the reputation of others. Words can harm. They can destroy. And God sees. And the list, and, and as these lists are typically in the Hebrew text, the last one is the one you really focus on. One who sows discord among brothers. That comes back to the troublemaker. And we saw the reference to continually sowing discord at the end of verse 14 and so there's some linkage here this is the one who sows discord among brothers brothers here not biological brothers as such as such uh, the hebrew word can be used much more widely and it, and it generally is here it is of a larger social entity such as a country a clan a, in our setting a church but god is in the business of reconciliation and he hates it when people intentionally and unnecessarily drive a wedge between people. There are people in this world who love to sow discord. You'll find them. They just do. God hates it. Don't be that person. Such a life orientation introduces decay in a community or a family. And so what is wisdom here? Wisdom, of course, is the opposite. And we need to be careful in that the, the opposite is not defined here for us, but I think we're fairly, we can fairly clearly conclude God loves humility. He loves truthful speech. He loves the preservation of life. God loves pure thoughts and eagerness to do good things and honest witnesses and those who promote peaceful harmony among people. This is a skillful way of living. And there are foolish ways of living that look to other agendas and are not concerned with what God thinks and use some of these tactics to harm. What are we to be? What are we not to be? This is the question. And God calls us in this text to live with moral skill. Think of it again. Let the, the truth just wash over our minds and through it into our souls again. God calls us in this text to live wisely. That is, to be free of risky financial dealings. We are to turn away from the path of laziness, to work diligently with self-discipline, skillfully laying up wealth for the future. We are to be to avoid troublemakers and not to be a troublemaker. Not to take that life orientation which displeases the Lord. And these seven things that God hates were to be the exact opposite. 
And here's where, again, there's a huge danger in working through the book of Proverbs together in a setting such as this. And that huge danger is for us to kind of say right about here, you know, I've got it pretty much together. I'm I'm tracking with those ideas. I'm not finding here anything I would disagree with. And I'm, I'm generally walking in line. Praise God if you are, it's an evidence of His grace. But it's here that we need to really under the conviction of the Spirit of God, take in what we're reading and to honestly say we fall very short. You take the seven things that God hates and without elaborating further upon them, we don't do so well. You take these four areas we've discovered today. A lack of faithful stewardship of my financial resources. Guilty. Laziness, guilty. Troublemaking, yeah, guilty. The seven sins God hates, guilty of every one. In some way, shape, or form, not not comparing with my neighbor, not comparing with some really bad person that I know, but comparing with the standard of God's righteousness, we're guilty. So there's, there's here great help to steer us in the right direction. Great help to sanctify the believer, to see what the truth is, to learn to discern and to work away from those that would draw us down wrong paths. But when we get to the heart of it all, we realize again our sin, that we are not who we ought to be, that moral folly is bound up in our soul. And this again is why we come on this Lord's Day with joy because it's here that we meet the grace of God in Christ. It's here that we realize His death to pay the penalty of our sin. His resurrection to free us from our innate immorality and foolishness. It's so vital. Here we receive the forgiveness of God and as we have sung today, as we have considered the Gospel and even in the Catechism of this One who has paid the penalty as both God and man in our place. It's here that we move on to the road of wisdom, not in our own strength, but we move on to the road of wisdom in trust and confidence in Christ crucified and risen. He is my forgiveness. He is the one who has given me a righteous standing, and in Him is my righteousness and wisdom. He did not make a ruin of His life through foolish relationships and foolish life orientations. And He, as the perfect Son of God, rescues and draws me to Himself. Jesus' righteous standing through faith in His work becomes our standing before God. And now in Him we pursue righteousness. Not as perfect people, as forgiven people. And that, I think, then brings us to ourselves as an assembly, as a church. A church is a member-sharpening, member-cooperative to help us pursue wise living. Occasionally, even through rebuke. 
but through an example, through trust and through confidence in what God's Word has revealed, we build one another up in the faith. We need each other and we need Jesus. And thankfully, He is one who specializes in reconciliation. He brings us together not in discord, but He brings us together through His cross in reconciliation that we may encourage each other to live a life of wisdom. What tremendous benefits are ours in Christ. What tremendous joy there is to read a text like this and say, it does not rely on my righteousness, but on Christ. And in His righteousness, He will deliver me from my own innate sin and allow me to live life with skill and with biblical discernment. This is the call to us. And for some here all of us on some level, but perhaps pointedly for some, this is a call from God to turn course. There's been conviction as we've talked about money, laziness, troublemaking, what God hates. The danger is to hear that and walk out today and just go right back into the way you've been living. This, we gather here on the Lord's day, this is an opportunity for change. That change will not come from within you, but it can come through the provision of Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Come to Him today, turning from your sin and embracing His forgiveness and grace. Let's bow for prayer. We give you thanks, Father, for what you have accomplished for us in Christ, and we give thanks for this Word of yours, our Father, giving us instruction because you love us, you care for us, you desire that we do what is right, but Lord, in the end, we throw ourselves at your mercy. Jesus, we thank you for the life that you have sacrificed to provide for our forgiveness and righteousness. And now, together, here we bow in thanksgiving praying in behalf of anyone who has not been born again, has not been given spiritual life, and ask that you would draw them to yourself. But for those of us who have trusted you, may we live a life of wisdom and skill. Teach us to be discerning, to understand the direction that we should take. And I pray that here today there would be change that takes place in our hearts. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.